and welcome to this week's edition of An Organic Conversation, a show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, nature, sustainability, interconnectedness, relationships, and life itself. There's so many incredible projects and nonprofit organizations and initiatives out there, it's mind blowing, really. The human potential for creating good is so powerful and present every day that I feel that we're actually changing the world right now in this time, in this generation. If there's a real challenge somewhere, environmentally, socially, culturally, or economically, it seems that at least one group of people is taking it on and making it their focus. Whether it's in our very own town or backyard or in the most remote areas around the globe, it is amazing how much great work is being done everywhere, every day. So today, it's one of those celebrations of a group of people who are connecting the environmental challenges they have witnessed in regard to deforestation with a solution that is both economically viable and ecologically beneficial. Planting hope. Reversing Deforestation and Poverty Through Education is our topic here today in this hour of an organic conversation. And we are your hosts, Helge Hilbert. And Sita Rani Palomar. And Sita, we're always starting the hour off with a little week's review, something that we encountered or experienced ourselves. And you look like you have something on your mind. I always have something on my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I want to talk about brand awareness and not in the sense that we usually talk about brand awareness. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine recently and I had mentioned something about a convenient car service where you can just pull up on your phone, tell them you need a car and then the car comes to pick you up. And this is a national service. They've been growing and growing and growing. And she said, you know, actually, she's the person who introduced me to them, funny enough, years and years ago. But so anyway, I mentioned it in our conversation and she said, you know, I stopped using them because as I learned more about the company and the founder, I felt a real misalignment of values. And it's just not where I wanted to put my dollars. It's not something I wanted to support. And it got me thinking because I talk about that on the air all the time. I'm saying, you know, look at who's making your food and look at who's making your clothes and find out what their philosophy is and what are their company values and make sure that your dollars are supporting things you believe in. And it's interesting how there, for me, I guess there's just been a certain amount of ignorance. It was like I was aware of it in a very specific sector. It's the sector that I work in. It's the sector that I advocate for. And yet I was not extending it into all areas of my life. And it just brought a lot of awareness. Well, you just did. Well, <laughs> With that awareness. Yeah. And now I've got to look at everything. I mean, now. and that's what we talk about. We say, look at everything, really. Right. Um, and, and not in a way that should be intimidating, but in a way where you feel empowered, where you, you work hard for your money and you want to make sure that your money is working hard for you and your community and, and communities all around the world. I think it's not a, um, a certain level or standard that once you achieved it, is you can feel great about your entire life. I think it is an ongoing process mm. of learning. You know, we, we have new things come up and we support them because they sound great to, um, and a real alternative to existing models, in this case, transportation. It is wonderful, actually, to hear that we now are learning that the movement of consciousness of really which choices we are making has no boundaries. Yeah, Whether it's the organic true. farmer next door or your public transportation choices or your vet or it doesn't matter anymore it's really uh, it doesn't it doesn't matter even what it is necessarily if it seems like a great idea if there if this is the time of transparency right the the internet has given us access to everything and now we are asking what is it giving us access to and so as we are learning 
what we are getting access to, that that wealth of information. We are finding out things that 20 years ago a company could get away with and now is no longer. Mm, and so it is really beautiful. I think it's it's a great reminder how powerful we actually are, that we are voting with our dollar with every decision we make all the time and that we have a choice because we have the information. This we didn't know and 20 years later we finally found out is no longer true. We, we can know in a minute mm. if something is not quite aligned with values and how things should be. So don't beat yourself up over the fact that you didn't <laughs> know until a few weeks ago, but this is great. This is an uh. ongoing process and we are getting better and faster. And that is just our topic in this hour of an organic conversation as well. It's planting hope, in fact, literally planting hope, reversing deforestation and poverty through education along the lines of um, education and a better understanding of what we're doing and what the alternatives are that are often both economically beneficial and ecologically beneficial. Before we dive into that topic with a wonderful guest who's joining us actually here in the studio, though, as always, here's the weekly update from the world of health and beauty, Chef Sita a.k.a. Sitarani Palomar, and her holistic bite. Well, frequently in this little mini segment, I will feature some of my favorite DIY beauty obsessions. And recently I was talking about my my newfound love of almond oil and its multi-uses in the bathroom, from face washing to moisturizing to replacing shave gel. And this week I want to talk about the no shampoo craze. I have read so much about this from Mind Body Green to Tree Hugger to Grist, even Dr. Oz said something about baking soda shampoo. And so I decided I wanted to give this a try because I loved the sound of reducing chemicals and reducing the beauty bill. And and I love to just create my own potions in my home, as my friend likes to say. So I was so surprised by how easy this was to do and by the results. So before we get there, I'm going to share how you create this for yourself at home. It's simply mixing a couple tablespoons of baking soda with an equal amount of water or maybe slightly heavier on the water. It depends on the length of your hair, the quantity of baking soda that you're going to use. And then you put it in a jar and shake it up and then pour it over your hair in batches. I start at my hairline and I massage it with my fingertips and and work in sections until all of my hair has been shampooed basically with this with this baking soda combination and I let it sit for a couple minutes and I rinse it out. It's that easy. And I can say that the results for me have been so surprising. I have more volume in my hair. I feel like it's softer and the texture has improved. It means that I style my hair less. It doesn't get oily as quickly so I don't have to wash it as frequently. So this has been a big life changer in a lot of ways. And I've also heard a lot of criticism about this because baking soda is such an alkaline ingredient that it actually can potentially damage the hair follicle. Some people say the reason actually that your hair feels softer is because it's weakening your hair. It's actually opening up the follicles and exposing them to damage. um, And that over time, this could potentially cause some some irreparable damage to your hair. Now that I don't know yet. I've, I've read about people who've been doing it for years with tons of success. So I think it's good to be mindful of the criticism, but also I'm going to say that right now this is really working for me. I'm going to keep doing my research. I've read some, some um, other alternatives. There's one blogger who switched to rye flour, which has a similar effect, but its alkalinity is not as extreme as baking soda. But 
Anything that gets you to create a, a no fuss, like minimal um, negative chemical chemicals in your home and on your body is, is a good thing in, in my book, so long as you've done your research and make sure that there aren't any adverse effects. And if you have any experiences with baking soda shampoo or if you have other DIY shampoos that you want to share, I would just be so ready to try them out and talk about them on air. So please let us know. And that was this week's Holistic Bite. <laughs> Thank you, Sita. I love that. I mean, it's good to be it's good to do your due diligence to sure, look at what totally. can be there to try it out. I don't wash my hair every single day anyway, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. some people do and it's good to to do your research there. It's also, you know, don't do anything at home sincerely your cosmetic industry. It's, <laughs> I don't know. There's just something about the whole DIY and it doesn't work and it doesn't know it does work. We had yeah. a great show on green home spring cleaning and um, I, I've used some of her recipes in the home that I live in and it's amazing it's simple and it's a dollar and it's just there is an alternative all these products came out of the foundation of really simple ingredients green soap repackaged for eight dollars no you don't need to you don't need to if you look at even uh, green bleach it's it's literally hydrogen peroxide Hmm. and hydrogen peroxide Mm -hmm. is 96 cents a liter or you know a pint (laughs) so uh yeah great more power to do it yourself it's so fun too do your research, but don't be discouraged either. I think you should be playful <laughs> with it, really. It's playful. And playful brings me up to just one little shout out who was playful with um, chimpanzees, Jane Goodall. It's her birthday coming oh, up. Oh, yes, that in is Just a week true. or so, two weeks. Our hero, Jane Goodall, happy birthday, and thanks for all your work. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helber. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Our topic in this hour is planting hope, reversing deforestation and poverty through education with an amazing guest, the president and founder of Sustainable Harvest International, who is joining us today, actually, here in this studio. That and more when we come back in just a minute. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helgi Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. There's great work being done everywhere around the planet, it seems like. We come across so many amazing initiatives and groups, and one of them is in the studio here with us today, Florence Reed. And I just heard that one of her chimpanzees of our birthday girl um, that we just 
celebrated. Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall, of course, whose birthday is in the beginning of April. Her chimpanzees was Flo, and we have her with us, Florence Reed, <laughs> the president <laughs> and founder of a different Flo. <laughs> Florence Reed, the president and founder of Sustainable Harvest International who is joining us in the studio today. Sustainable Harvest International has the headquarter, though, in Maine, in Ellsworth, Maine. Florence, thank you so much for joining us and for coming in all oh, the way from Maine. Thank you for having <laughs> me. It's wonderful to be here, and I am proud to share the name of one of Jane Goodall's chips. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. You, are, you were able to come uh, here into the studio because you just attended a conference as well on the West Coast. Tell us about that a little bit. I was just down at the Global Innovation Summit in San Jose, which was a gathering of several hundred people from dozens of countries around the world talking about how to create ecosystems to facilitate innovation change. In, in the world and yeah. positive change in the world. And uh, I particularly like they, they call these ecosystems rainforests. Uh, wow, <laughs> so amazing. I, I, maybe that was part of why I felt drawn to, to this particular gathering, but it was a wonderful group of people. It is a perfect lead-in. It really seems like there, if there's a challenge in the world, within some time there is a group dedicated really on a heartfelt level to change it. You have done that. You founded an organization addressing two of the world's most pressing challenges, really, deforestation and poverty completely connected and combined in, in those regional, uh, regions of the world. Tell us, how was the idea for Sustainable Harvest International born? How did you come up with that? Well, primarily, I would say it came out of my experience as a Peace Corps volunteer. I was living in a small rural community in Panama, and I got to see firsthand a lot of the things that I had studied in college about tropical deforestation. I saw how the farmers were, in fact, burning down more of the forest every year with slash-and-burn farming. But I also came to understand something I, I hadn't read in the textbooks, which was that the farmers really did not want to be burning down the forest every year. It was simply that slash-and-burn farming was the only type of farming they had ever been taught. They didn't have access to adequate education to learn a different type of farming but they really wanted sustainable farming practices so they could grow on the same land year after year and not have to constantly cut down more of the forest. So I came out of the Peace Corps really wanting to work for an organization that was focused on providing them with the kind of long-term hands-on technical assistance they needed to make that transition to sustainable farming. And I was shocked to find there was no such organization mm. in existence when I came out of the Peace Corps in the early 90s. So I worked for a couple of other nonprofit organizations first, and then eventually that led me into founding Sustainable Harvest International back in 1997. Talk, let's talk about uh, the, the practice of deforestation. It is uh, in part often done for the wood, but really it's to clear areas that then are used for agricultural use, uh, yes. mainly cattle. Is that still the heartbeat of deforestation? As you say, there are a variety uh, of drivers behind it, and it depends quite a bit depending on the geography. But agricultural expansion is still the primary driver livestock. in Central America. Uh, yes, yeah, some of it is livestock, um, and others it's subsistence farmers uh, just burning down more of the forest to grow corn and beans and subsistence crops for their families. And why why slash and burn? What, what was the perceived benefit of doing that in the first place? Well, I think the perceived value is that it, it 
it clears the way for the crops that you want to grow and it leaves ash which acts as a fertilizer and it it provides some nutrients for the crops and i think it was probably a system that worked well when it was a small indigenous population and they could grow for a year and then leave that burned area to recuperate for 50 or 100 years before going back to it again and it could recuperate surrounded by more forest and i think they were also only growing a few crops to supplement the hunting and gathering mm-hmm. that they were also doing. And now things have just changed so much. The population is so much larger and the um, land is not distributed equitably sure. and mm. the farmers go back after only five or six years and whatever's uh, grown back, cut it again, burn it again. And so the land never has time to recuperate and the, the forest is mostly gone so there's no hunting and gathering to supplement oh, what right. they're growing. Sure. We're speaking with the president and founder of Sustainable Harvest International, Flo Reed, who's joining us in the studio in this hour of an organic conversation, planting hope, reversing deforestation and poverty through education. So you were talking about how you realized that the farmers didn't want to continue doing this slash and burn, but they didn't have access to any other way of doing it. And that's where Sustainable Harvest International comes in. You have multiple phases of agricultural education. Can you Walk us through those processes. What does it mean to be a part of Sustainable Harvest International, and what are the farmers and families learning? Sure. So we do have a five-phase program, and it's based on local field trainers, uh, or extension agents, you might call them. And each one of our field trainers works with around 30 or 40 families who have asked to work with us. Uh, our field trainers are from this, the region, so they they're know the locals. Yes, they're mm-hmm. locals. So they know the language, they know Great. the culture, they know the environment. Most of them grew up in some similar circumstances they're to trusted. the farmers. Because yes, often the you know when you come in as an expert from the outside, from the Western world, you don't understand anything about the challenge. Right. So these people know. Yes, e- exactly. Um, and then the field trainers take the families mm-hmm. through this five-phase program, and the first phase is really just focused on explaining what we offer, which is mostly technical assistance information, what we don't offer, which is we don't really offer handouts except maybe a few seeds and materials to facilitate the process. And then the families in a community tend to self-select who is willing to put their faith in us and take the risk and put the effort in to try what we have to offer. And then the field trainers will help them plan out what they'd like to accomplish with us over the next five years. And at that point, the families can move into the second phase of work, which is really the heart of our program. And this is when our field trainers teach them the sustainable organic practices that will allow them to increase the production of their farms and allow them to grow on the same land every year. And they usually start out with more of a focus on the traditional staple crops like corn and beans. So it's crops that the families are familiar with. But then they also start to help the families add in other crops so they're not eating only corn and beans anymore. So they help them with vegetable gardens, uh, fish ponds, chicken Mm. coops, uh, sometimes even iguanas, um, so that they have a greater variety in their diet, a more balanced diet. And that's something that they can take care of. Uh, and and I, one of my big gripes with a lot of poverty alleviation efforts is that they just focus on getting people more mm-hmm. money. And I understand the logic of trying to get more money to, to people with, without money. But money is really only a tool. And money can come and go so easily in these communities 
that I think it makes a lot more sense to teach them how to grow a healthy diet for themselves. Because if they're relying on the money to feed themselves, that's a risky proposition. But if they have the knowledge of how to grow a healthy diet for themselves, that knowledge won't come and go. That will be with them for generations. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we do put that emphasis there uh, in the beginning of the program and, and really probably for the majority of the program. That said, once the families know how to produce a healthy diet for themselves, we do help them start to diversify more in the third phase of work and start thinking about growing crops to increase the cash income from their farms uh -huh. as well because they do want to have money to pay for things like sending their children to school, sure. maybe building medical. their first home, medical costs. Yes, um, so th there is a need for money as well. And we do start to help them with that in the third phase uh, of work with us, also helping them to put trees back onto the land if it has been deforested, grow those tree seedlings, plant them out onto the land as part of an integrated farming system. And then with the fourth phase, that's where there's a real emphasis on the business side of farming, helping them connect with markets, helping to set up community loan funds for some microfinance so they can have access to loans for the first time in their lives to expand their farms, make improvements on their farms Equipment if they want to do that. that. Yeah, uh -huh. mm -hmm, exactly. And then the fifth phase is just when they prepare to graduate from our program. Uh, we now help them to learn how to be leaders in their community, how to most effectively share what they've learned with other farmers. The party phase. Yes, and then, 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 then there's, yes, there is a big party. When they graduate after five years, it is a big celebration. I mean, they, I they close imagine. down the school for the day. It's a holiday in the village. Everybody comes out in their best clothes. Wow. They decorate with flowers, and they weave the palm leaves together. So and uh, the, they bring out the instruments. There's dancing. There's a feast. Uh, on our end, we provide each farmer who graduates from the program with a diploma and it is proudly displayed on the wall of every house uh, where they've graduated and then they're able to continue on their own without needing further assistance to meet their basic needs and we're also starting to see that every farmer that graduates from the program is training an average of seven more farmers really? so they're really they're becoming teachers themselves they're becoming leaders in in their community and that's when we really feel that we've been successful, when they're able to continue on their own and, and share what they've learned with others. Wow. That's amazing. Um, we're speaking with Flo Reed, the president and founder of Sustainable Harvest International, who's joining us in the studio. Sustainable Harvest International is based out of Ellsworth, Maine, sustainableharvest.org for more information. And I believe your staff is listening in, right, of course, to this episode. Uh, <laughs> yes, our staff uh, are among some of your biggest fans. Yeah, shout out to Michelle. Is that uh, Michelle and, Su and Susanna. Oh, Susanna. Oh, Susanna. Yes. <laughs> yes. For all the great work. That's the five-year, five-step program. And actually, you can partake in the celebration. You actually bring people down there as part of kind of an eco um, travel tourism program. We want to hear more about that when we come back. You're listening to an again conversation. I'm Hege Hilbert. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And our focus in this hour is planting hope, literally. Planting hope, reversing deforestation and poverty through education. More on that right after the break. Stay tuned. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. 
Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helder. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Planting hope, reversing deforestation and poverty through education. Our topic in this hour, we're speaking with Flo Reed, the president and founder of Sustainable Harvest International, who's joining us in this studio in this hour, in this week's show. Flo, you, you talked about the five-year, five-step program, really starting with a healthy family unit, making sure there's kind of organic farming practices almost sounded like permaculture, like a permaculture approach, right? Bringing in not just one or two or three crops, but making sure there's a diversity in diet. There's maybe even fish ponds um, going towards the marketability of some crops, bringing in some cash, then really getting them ready for market, then graduating and becoming part of the community and teaching others. You, I think we were ending that segment just before the break that you were saying one farmer can educate or on average educates seven others. That's the ratio of Yes, that's what we're starting to see. That is, that's amazing, of course. That's the biggest effect. Um, I heard a similar number when it comes to local dollars spent. Every local dollar that is not going to a multinational company stays within your community between five and eight or ten times because it's you pay somebody locally, they spend that dollar locally um, into local purchases. That makes it to the local farm worker again. It's just, you know, the, the dollar per community is actually eight dollars if you don't support multinational corporations where it's just ten cents that stays in the community in, in forms of loan or in forms of paper hours. What have you seen? How how have participants' relationships to the land changed since Sustainable Harvest International came and introduced those organic farming practices like what's what's the beginning when you started this work and what have you seen as a result really as a culture happening down there well it really happens i think on a farmer by farmer basis as the farmers go through this this five-year program when they begin working with us uh, i often find that they view the natural environment as an impediment to their Mm. farming and that what they need to do is destroy what's there and get rid of it to make way for the the farming that they want to do. And then I I see that consciousness change over the years working with our field trainers until they come to see the natural ecosystems as their friend and as what they a tool that they can use to produce for their wow. families and, and do well for their families. It, one great example I, I often think of is a farmer in Honduras uh, named Don Cheo, and uh, we had some people who made a video about him, which uh, you can probably still find on our, our website or, or YouTube or Vimeo, wherever it is. Um, and uh, in, this, in this video, I'm watching Don Cheo, and I'm thinking back to visiting him when he was just beginning work with our program. And I remember him apologizing to me that there were some trees on his land and saying, don't worry, I'll cut down all those trees and get them out of the way and clean the land for uh, growing the crops. And I remember saying, well, Don Che, 
Mateo, just wait a minute, okay? Talk to uh, Juan Carlos, your, your field trainer, and you might want to think about leaving some trees. And then years later, he had just graduated or about to graduate from the program, and these people went down and filmed him. Uh, people from Myriad Media filmed him to uh, do this video for us. And there's a scene where he's talking about how he's putting all the land, all the money that he makes back into the land. And he's saying, so, you know, I don't have any money in my pockets, but it doesn't matter. If I die tomorrow, I can sell a piece of land uh, or my kids can sell a piece of land to, to pay for my coffin. And then he pauses a minute and he says, yeah, but you know what? When I die, I don't even want a coffin. I want my kids to bury me at the foot of a tree so that I can give life back to one of the trees that's giving life oh, to wow. our environment. And, and this is after he has, in fact, planted hundreds of trees um, on his land. And so seeing that kind of change where uh, he goes from feeling like trees are an impediment to feeling like trees are something he wants and wants to you know, really give everything to protecting and, and nurturing. Are the participants you're working with conscious of that change? Like, does he know that five years ago he wanted to, or whenever, whenever that happened, um, that he wanted to cut down those trees and how much he loves them now? Yes, yeah. yeah talking to the farmers as they get towards graduation or after they've graduated, you hear they're them talk about how they used to destroy mm -hmm. the land because they just didn't know any better. Sure. And, and now they realize that by taking care of the environment, that the environment will also take care of them. I don't know that That's many of beautiful. us can say we've experienced that kind of evolution of our relationship to anything in five years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what a story. S sounds like a spiritual program as much as a really economical and addressing the challenges. In which regions are you present right now? Which which areas are you working in? Well, we currently uh, work only in Central America. Uh, that's the only area where we've ever worked. Um, we work in Honduras, Panama, and Belize. And uh, we worked for many years in Nicaragua as well. And now we're just starting to take a look at the whole Latin America Caribbean region and start thinking about where can we take the program in the future. And we're trying to assess where we can have the greatest impact on forest preservation and on poverty alleviation and, and take a look at beyond that where there's funding, where there's partners uh, who could work with us and, and start to lay the groundwork for thinking about taking the program to other countries as well. But this kind of local mentorship um, idea could be implemented anywhere, really. You, and you are looking at expanding it into other regions. Yeah, it, it could be uh, implemented anywhere. And we're also uh, working towards documenting how we do what mm -hmm. we do and, and packaging it in a way that other organizations really in any part of the world could adapt it to their country and, and implement it there because this is a global problem and we'd, we want our, our impact to be global. Mm. Sure. How do you build that trust when you first come to a community and even though you do work with local mentors, you still need to build even the trust to those local mentors? How hard is that? It really seems to me that it's never been very hard. The farmers see that what they're doing isn't working and that the land is getting so degraded from the slash and burn farming that it's not going to sustain them, that they're having to move into the city where job prospects are pretty miserable, or they're having to try to get one of the family members here to the U.S. to try to find work to send money home, uh, but then the family's separated and uh, they'd rather be staying in their community. 
And the only other option might be to find some virgin forest somewhere else. And then they're often going into national parks and and cutting down those forests to grow their crops. And they know that it's illegal. They they know they shouldn't be doing it. But again, they just don't see any other way to feed their children. And I'm sure I would do the same thing if I thought my child was going to go hungry. So they're really looking for this kind of alternative. And it's, it's not hard for us to find the people that are are jumping at the chance to participate in the program. And I'm sure you've built a reputation at this point, right? I mean, how many farms farmers have you worked with? Yeah, we have over a thousand farmers yeah. who have graduated from our program, and they also training help seven thousand others. Uh, right, right. Yes, if the math is applicable. Yes. That's, that is and, a lot and of farmers. They talk to, when we have new communities that are joining the program, farmers who have graduated will often join our staff mm-hmm. to talk about their experience. They'll invite people from other communities if we can help facilitate transportation and things like that. Uh, then new farmers from new communities can visit the graduated farms to see what's possible and what somebody in their same circumstances has accomplished. You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helbert. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And our interview partner in this hour of Planting Hope, Reversing Deforestation and Poverty Through Education is Flo Reed, the president and founder of Sustainable Harvest International, based out of Ellsworth, Maine, sustainableharvest.org, for more information. So, Florence, you were talking earlier about one one other facet of the work you do, particularly the time of the celebration when somebody is graduated, is that you take ecotourism trips down to these sites. Can you tell us more about that? Sure, I'd be glad to. We take people down at all different phases uh, of work. Uh, so, for instance, we had a family from Tiburon who went down with us recently and they worked with a community that was getting close to graduating from the program, but they spent a day with one of those farmers, helped to transplant tree seedlings, where some extra hands were really helpful. And by working together, it really gives an opportunity for the visitors from America to connect with the local families in helping them with with their projects. Another day we visited a community that was just getting started with the program and we helped them to plant their first vegetable garden. And again, it, it allows people from the U.S. to interact with the community in a way that would be very difficult if our program wasn't there on a regular basis and we weren't so much part of the community already. And for the people in the community, it's very empowering for them to see that we would be willing to spend our vacation working side by side with them, helping them with the projects that they're doing. And it really gives them a sense that what, what they do matters, um, which, which is something they don't get very often. And then other times we will be there for a graduation. Uh, our board of directors was down in Honduras just uh, this past week to celebrate the graduation of a number of families from the program. And, and that's a joyous occasion for, for everybody from the farmers to, to the local field trainers to, to the board members who volunteer so much time to make the work possible uh, or the donors who provide the funding that to, to allow this work to happen. Are those trips open to the public if people just want to learn and help and spend their vac- vacation, quote-unquote, as an education? Yes. I tried to make a really funny word spiel there, but it 
it, it doesn't work. actually work. <laughs> vacation and education, but yeah, like an educational vacation for, for Vol- volunteerism. Yeah, uh, volunteer. oh, I love uh, see, that. You just beat that's me to way, it. That's way better. That's than what, what I was just saying. <laughs> I did not coin the term, but I have <laughs> oh, heard the yeah. term volunteerism. <laughs> yes, where yes, it is an interesting new culture that you emerge yourself in but it's not laying on the beach or maybe there's a day doing that too but it's really about yeah (laughs) i'm sure um, it's really about getting to know real people their challenges and being a part of the solution even if it's just for one day planting um, yes tree seeds i think that's such an amazing new way of you know using that special time of the year for true cultural it sounds like peace work to me really Mm -hmm. that's the that's the work I mean, right back to your roots of being a Peace Corps volunteer. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that feel similar? It's just now really directed? Yes, yes. We're helping people to make peace with the environment and and with the earth. And I think we're also, by making people self-sufficient, allowing them to to be self-sufficient, giving them that, that peace of mind and that ability to choose their own destiny. Yes, Planting Hope, Reversing Deforestation and Poverty Through Education. Again, the website is sustainableharvest.org. Are those the strips uh, public or can uh, do you, yes. how does that work? How uh, do you? We usually have a few trips each year that well, are planned. There, there are dates that are set for them, and anybody can sign up to, to join one of those trips. And then we also uh, are happy to create a trip for uh, an individual family or a group. Uh, So we've had a number of student groups go and volunteer with us. We've had church groups that have gone to volunteer with us. Uh, Of course, there is a cost to the trip. We expect people to cover the the cost of the trip. We don't want to take that funding away from from our local field trainers and and the, the farmers working with us, but if groups need help with the fundraising, we, we will try to help them uh, with that as well. Speaking, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to yeah just Take go right away. down that yeah. path too about <laughs> ways that people can help support, help support your organization. What do you, how do you keep afloat? You have a pretty substantial budget that you have, you know, some small staff, very effective, but you work with a lot of people far away. So Yes, um, and honestly, the thing that we need most is more funding. Uh, we have thousands of farmers on a waiting list waiting to work with our program, anxious to work with our program. As I say, we'd like to make it available to people in other countries as well. And the one thing that's holding us back is that we, we don't have the, the, the funding yeah. to hire more field trainers and so on. So if people uh, can donate, that is a wonderful help. If they can't donate, if they can help to spread the word mm-hmm. about what we're doing or organize events that will raise the funds to allow us to work with more families, those are some of the best ways uh, that, that people can help us. Uh, going on a trip is, is a great way to learn more about the work and connect with it firsthand so that uh, you can then come back and share your personal experience uh, and help raise awareness and help raise more funds that way for our work. And since this most in most instances, if not always, includes airfare, um, how mm-hmm. about donating miles? Is yes. that something you take on? Yes. Yeah. Um, our, our staff can always use the miles to... Yeah. Uh, Circumvent fl- the ticket. Right. Which yes. Which is quite costly down yes. to endure, as I can imagine. So if one of our listeners are uh, sitting on a bunch of airplane miles, what is it called, airline miles, um, that's a great way, actually, to because they have an expiration date anyway, and mm-hmm. 100,000 miles. Uh, do you know what, it, what a ticket down there takes? 
Um, it, it's it's a hundred thousand miles or less. Ish, yeah. uh, yes, right. it, it may be brings less the staff are down there to to mm-hmm. continue working with that program. That's right. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Flo. Thanks for what you do, and it, really, you're part of this kind of fabric of change. Where in my intro, I said this. There's almost no corner of the world where a dedicated group of people is not looking at how to make things better mm-hmm. and facing challenges or experiencing challenges and taking them on. And um, yeah, your work in Central America seems critical. May it spread uh, like a natural mm-hmm. organic carpet <laughs> all over the Americas. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and you know, talking about today. things that people can do if if we have one yes. more minute to oh, talk about yeah. that, uh, Sita was talking about <laughs> using your purchasing dollars and voting with your purchasing dollars. And I am, uh, I'm sure you have other programs dedicated just to this, but I would take the opportunity to also encourage people to buy organic coffee, buy fair trade coffee, chocolate, bananas, these products that come from the communities where we work. It really Mm. does make a big difference if the bananas you buy uh, are certified organic or or certified as uh, eco-okay. Uh, th- these programs do make a difference uh, uh, as opposed to buying the bananas that come from the big plantation where the workers are paid very little and sprayed with chemicals. And uh, so uh, thinking about the the purchases that you make really do make a difference as well. That's really wonderful to hear because we have had shows on uh, fair purchasing. We just had a great documentary on the tomato harvest in um, on the Mexico-Florida border or in a small town in, in Florida where people are fighting for a penny more uh, f- for the for the tomatoes they're harvesting, which would double their income. And so it, there's you know lots of opinions out there which are the most effective programs, fair trade, organic. Uh, we always say make sure it has as many true equal attributes as you can, right? Local yes. farmer if you can, and if it comes from from a place far away, then fair trade and and organic are the mm-hmm. two absolutely to look out for. And it's great to hear from you who works really with the land and the farmers in those areas, Central America, uh, hands-on to hear that those things have a huge impact down there. That's just really great, full circle as well. Sure So again, that's Flo Reed, the president and founder of Sustainable Harvest International. Uh, based out of Ellsworth, Maine, who's joining us here, who joined us today here in the studio on this topic of planting hope, reversing deforestation and poverty through education and sustainable farming practices. Thanks so much for being in the studio with us today. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. Our pleasure, really. (laughs) And this is An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Hilbert. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. What's coming up? What's in season? And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. That was an amazing interview with Flo Reed, Planting Hope, Reversing Deforestation and Poverty Through Education, Sustainable Harvest International, an amazing organization out of Maine, sustainableharvest.org, who is helping right now in Central America 
farmers becoming more self-sustaining and sustainable in practice. And actually, during the break, Flo, you said you would stay because our next topic, what's in season, we're tackling mangoes. And mangoes are one of those crops that are actually grown down there. So please stay here for a moment. This is great. Here is what's in season. And with us, as always, the voice of the San Francisco produce market, Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce. Earl, do we have you with us? Hello, Helga. Hello, Zita. <laughs> Hi there. Hi there, sir. Hi, Earl. We have a guest with us in the studio, Flo Reed, the president and founder of Sustainable Harvest International. And we finished the interview just a few minutes ago, and we said next, the next segment is what's in season every week, the update from the produce dock, and it's mangoes. And she said that's one of those crops that are grown down there in Central America and mm -hmm. where organic makes a huge difference. It is really making a change uh, in those areas, even from the tropicals you bring in. How's the? Tell us about the mango market. Sure will. Well, uh, welcome, Flo. Uh, thank you, and thank you for uh, focusing on the organic products, <laughs> yeah, including the yeah, mangoes. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, well, you know, we spoke about mangoes. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure yeah. it was last month. Yeah, month we back. did a tro we did a whole episode on tropicals. We yeah. were all very much enamored with the mango conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and. I, I thought it was timely now because really this is kind of the kickoff of the Mexican season. And the Mexican season is the longest season, at least in the organic product that I procure. And it kind of runs from February through August. And um, we've been seeing some really nice product The uh, uh, that came off the end of the Peruvian deal that we were doing. And that finished up with some fantastic Kents. And, and so the product has been... Is, is is really in good shape. We're, we're seeing a very good supply. And like I said, this is the very beginning, and it's going to go through August. And why I want to talk about it, it, not only because it's the season starting, but it's kind of the precursor to what we consider the stone fruit season, the nectarine, peach, um, and pluot and plum season that wow. starts around sure. late April, May. And so... Um, because even though mangoes are, are around in the summer, they've got competition from peaches. So right now they have the market to themselves in terms of that incredibly intense, fragrant, um, almost exaggerated fruit. So this is the time to get them, and, and we're seeing a lot of good sizing. When I say good sizing, it's, it's as big as your hand. And there's several different ways to eat them, and there's several ways to recognize them. One thing that is the biggest challenge, well, I don't know, well, I'm going to speak from a from a Californian's point of view, is the rain and the wind that can happen, and that's probably the one of the bigger challenges that comes up because that's obviously totally out of anybody's control. But this season seems to be fairly stable, and we're in pretty darn good shape. We we focus a lot on the on the Tommy Atkins and the Kents and the and the Haydens, but there's a terrific mango that's around too, and that's it can be pronounced any number of ways, but I pronounce it the Atafo, and that is the uh, the bright yellow, very very small uh, thin seed in the middle. It's a little more expensive, but it's a real treat. It's familiar uh, to the Manila or the Champagne mango and the conventional side, and those are also around now. It's really interesting to hear the impact of organic agriculture. One would think that nowadays 
if it comes from or from an organic farm somewhere outside of the U.S., it must be so commercially available that it it's worthwhile importing. Meaning, it must be a substantial commercial farm, even though organic, but not in the small farm sense that we maybe understand local small scale farming. Uh, not so, because many farmers can come together in kind of a collaborative effort. And you import, you know, the mangoes from one region, really, and consistent of 50, 40, 50, 60 farms that that brought their harvest uh, to, to the same marketplace. Yeah, I, my understanding is that we deal with a lot of cooperative situations in that manner. I'm a little more familiar with the banana trade, sure. but I think it could be very similar in the mango, where there are groupings, regional groupings of people getting together and working as a co-op. And I, there's a lot of advantages that can come out of that, of course. You know, we have done some fair trade uh, product, and there's definitely a sensitivity to it, at least in California in the Bay Area. And the challenge that we see as marketers of the product at this end to a retailer is there's not, I'd like to see some b- better information, a little more consistent and perhaps clear and focused as really what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, but it's, it's a fantastic thing, and wherever we can, we do support that. It, it, can be, it can be a little challenging because there's some different branding with fair trade also. Yes. Which, when, when you have a, 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 an emerging market, it can be a little confusing for people. Yeah, we had a conversation about that with a young woman recently where she was asking us, well, I hear now that direct trade is better than fair trade. And I, I do think it creates a certain amount of confusion for for the consumer. Um, and it might be appreciated by the consumer, but it might not be demanded yet that some of those items are fair trade as well. But uh, Flo, why don't you chime in here real quick? Um, what is your experience of, is this really how it works? Even if you're a small farmer with just a handful of acres and you want to export something even overseas into the U.S. through uh, a wholesale distributor just as Earl's organic produce that farmers would team up and the collaborative is really what's what's happening down right, there. Right, e- exactly. And with the farmers that work with us, we really encourage them to grow a diversity on their farms and that's part of a healthy ecosystem. So our farmers may be growing 20 or 30 different crops and it might be just one mango tree that but one mango tree can produce hundreds of mangoes. And if yep. they can band together with the other farmers in, in their community, then they can think about getting up to an export level for something like uh, mangoes. Sure, great. Well, I, I find it interesting um, to be talking about fair trade in the same conversation as mangoes because this this is getting to be um, um, expansive. When when fair trade was first on the market, you were mostly talking about coffee and tea and chocolate. And then a handful of years later, you started seeing the fair trade label on bananas. And now we're talking about fair trade in relationship to mangoes. So it seems like, you know, Earl, when you say that there's a there's a consumer call for more information, there there is actually more information out there to begin with. I didn't know that there were fair trade mangoes. Of course, the practices could exist with whatever crop that there is, but but I'm so happy that you brought this up. But it sounds like retail has to step up a little bit with the connection to the direct consumer, and the product is now beginning to really be consistently out there and an excellent quality. That's what what you're saying earlier. There's even some conversation about fair trade domestic product, which is is interesting interesting. too. So, you know, uh, pertaining to uh, 
proper living conditions and, and, and proper wages and, and returning it back into the community. Wonderful. Great to know. Thank you, Earl. This is the mango season. Um, yeah. No, no frit refrigeration, right? Keep them on the counter, eat them within a few days. Yeah, absolutely. Keep them on the counter. You know, they're, they're tropical, so, you know, uh, warmish, high humidity is fine. But, yeah, keep them out of the refrigerator. And, and you know, pay attention to them. Don't, don't forget about them because they will go bad. So eat them within, you know, you probably have a week. But, you want to, again, pick them heavy for their size, and they should be fairly firm if they're, if they're giving the amount that they're going to give is the, is the amount of ripeness they have. So the more giving they, ha they may be, the more ripe they probably and are. And the sooner you want to eat them, of course. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Earl, <laughs> for joining us. We'll talk with you next week. Yes, great talking. Thanks, you, you too. too. Bye, Take Earl. care. Bye. Bye. And that was a packed hour. Thanks, Flo, for sticking around. It's really wonderful to see how those cycles just, you know, keep cycling. This is one, yeah. one industry working with one another to make it better for everyone. Um, Thank you. That's Planting Hope, Reversing Deforestation and Poverty Through Education, our focus in this hour. I'm Helga Helbert. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate Producer, Kristen Ponger. This show would not be possible without the ongoing support from our listeners. Whether it's a dollar a month or a one-time donation, please consider becoming a patron of An Organic Conversation. For more information on how to support this program, please visit patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash an organic conversation thank you for your contribution an organic conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters earl's organic produce a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store home or business since 1988 the website is earlsorganic.com and also fry vineyards america's first certified organic winery producing organic and certified biodynamic wine. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash an organic conversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helber and Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye.